Hello and welcome to the Cycling Podcast. I'm Lionel Burney and the countdown to the Tour de France starts here because the Giro d'Italia is now in the rearview mirror. And we're already halfway through the Criterium du Dauphiné, which means that the Grand Depart is on the horizon. It all starts in Bilbao on July the 1st, and the Cycling Podcast will be there, of course. Now, television Daniel Freiber is on ITV duty this week, as he will be during the Tour de France. So, with the Netflix release of the long-awaited series Unchained, I'm joined by two stars who have plenty of screen experience between them, whether on screen or behind screen. Well, I'll leave you to judge. First up, fresh from the inaugural Bath Bristol Bath Classic, where he beat Sean Kelly and I in a sprint finish, recovering from a three-week stint in the commentary box at the Giro and in the thick of his research for the tour, where he'll be on the mic for Eurosport GCN, it's Lancashire's finest, Rob Hatch. Welcome, Rob. Thank you very much, Lionel. How are you? Very well, thank you. Where are you, Rob? Uh, I'm in northern Spain, just having a couple of days off at the minute and on my way for a quick trip back to Lancashire, actually, before nettling down and getting ready for the Tour de Suisse. Terrific, terrific. Well, our other guest needs no introduction at all. He's the star of our Friends of the Podcast series, La Marseillaise, which we recorded earlier this year. A journalist, author, novelist, punk rocker, former restaurant owner, the list goes on. He's also the man who, while working for Reuters 25 summers ago, broke the Festina scandal story. And since 2017, he's been injecting a rich dose of French flavour into our Tour de France coverage. And I'm very pleased to say that he'll be joining Mitch Docker and I at the start in Bilbao, although we will be dropping him off at his second home, Le Viscos, in the heart of the Pyrenees towards the end of the first week. But it will be a pleasure to have Francois Tomaso again with us for the Tour de France. Welcome, Francois. Thank you very much, uh, Lionel, for the introduction. And yeah, yeah, uh, I, there's been lots of rumours, like with Thibaut Pinot, will he be at the Tour? I'll be at, <laughs> I'll be at the start of the Tour. First, that's one thing. <laughs> You'll be at the start of the tour. We will take it, Francois. We'll take it. Talking of screen appearances, I've actually just watched Enter the Slipstream, which is a film that was made during the lockdown Tour de France in 2020 uh, by some friends of the podcast, actually, or the people who became friends of the podcast, actually making a kilometre zero about that for the Tour de France. Uh, Francois, you were one of the uh, experts on screen in that film. But this week, of course, it's all about the Netflix series, isn't it? I've actually watched the first two episodes so far. Um, yeah, I think it's officially released tomorrow for the general public. But, uh, well, tap side of nose, I had a sneak preview of the first two episodes. I'm not going to spoil it, but the first episode focuses on Quickstep Alpha Vinyl. And the second features Jumbo Visma and uh, centres on the cobbled stage. But the first episode, Julian Alaphilippe is kind of a... A key figure to Quickstep Alpha Vinyl's tour last year, even though he didn't ride. And, well, he's back on form, we think, at the Dauphiné. We'll talk about the Criterium du Dauphiné in the next part. But sticking with all things screen, all things TV, I did wonder whether Lance Armstrong's appearance in Stars on Mars. Have you heard anything about this yet, either of you? Have you seen any of it? I saw an Instagram trailer and actually wondered whether they were sending him into space. I was a little naive when I saw the sort of music and the, the titles and then I, I did sort of lose interest a little bit, I'm afraid. I, I've had I've already down week after the year. I'm only just resurfacing. They're not sending him into space, are they? Well, I had to read this story a couple of times to 
verify that it wasn't some kind of hoax but no he is appearing in a reality show in the US a load of celebrities do they have what it takes to basically live on Mars I mean the obvious joke is he was on another planet between 1999 (laughs) and 2005 Francois wasn't he but uh, there we are American listeners have the benefit of watching stars on Mars not something that I've seen yet but it sounds absolutely out of this world before we crack on and talk about the Criterium du Dauphiné, quite a bit of news to round up. Lots of racing in May while our eyes were all on the Giro d'Italia. I won't go through every result from the month of May, but a couple of things that might give us some pointers for the Tour de France that were of interest. Mark Hershey of UAE Team Emirates won both the Tour de Hongri and the Giro del Apennino. That was a one-day race in Italy uh, a few days ago now. So he's obviously re- rediscovering his mojo a bit. Uh, Richard Carapaz won the classic Alp Maritime just leading into the Criterium du Dauphiné, which uh, I thought was an indicator of his form picking up just at the right time of the season. A little mention also for Ben Tulit of Ineos Grenadiers, the young rider uh, who took the Tour of Norway. And that race was also notable because Thibaut Nice, the son of the cyclocross legend, I think we have to call him Sven Nice, won his first major race on the road. And bringing the men's racing a bit more up to date, the Brussels Cycling Classic at the weekend. Quite an interesting sprint finish, actually. Almost denied by that man again, Derek G, man of the Giro, attacked with a couple of Kilometers to go. Then Kellen O'Brien of Jayco Alula had a go, but it was a win for Arno Demar. And I wonder what this means for Groupama FDJ going into the Tour de France, Francois. If we start already going into that, it's uh, it's a tricky one. I mean, I don't. I mean, we're going to talk about uh, the, the, the 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 time trial today uh, in the Dauphiné, uh, and David Godu didn't fare very well, to be honest. Uh, lost uh, quite a bit of time on the other other favourites. There's always the Thibaut Pinot question mark. Can we imagine that you know, with everything is given to Groupama FDJ uh, throughout his career on his last uh, year on the on the. Uh, you know, on the world tour, he wouldn't go to the tour. So it sounds a little bit strange. I don't know. I, I'm not. Uh, I'm not Marc Madio. I, I have no idea what's uh, what's going going to happen. Yeah, I have a few indications. I mean, the only sure thing is that uh, David Godu will be the, the team leader. I mean, even if he's not performing as well as as planned so far, uh, you know, in in the Dauphiné, I think that the, the whole package will be there. We know that Arnaud Demar used to be the kind of sprinter who needed a, a train to perform well. But I mean, all sprinters these days, you know, and the, in the last couple of seasons have, have you know, found new ways of sprinting, more or less left to their own devices. And uh, I wouldn't be surprised if uh, Demar is in that team. But, uh, you know, with just one guy to to, uh, you know, to help him out, maybe Thibaut Pinot will be his lead-out man. Who knows? <laughs> in, in, the, in the pots of evil mould from last year, the Giro. I, I think it depends on how much they actually really believe in David Goudou. Because it's clear that this tour has been made for David Goudou at his age. I think we've had that on pretty good authority generally. Uh, I know that a lot of teams, talking to a couple of teams, think that this year, that if there ever was a tour route for David Goudou, it was this one. If they think that he can get a podium, surely they have to put all of their weight behind that and leave sentiment aside. And, and I think I say that more with regards to Demar than Pino, because, of course, Pino 
could be of assistance in the mountains and what have you. I am an Arvon Demar fan and I watched the race at the weekend. I commentated it for the, the host broadcast and I thought he was in exceptional form. Really, really, really looked good. But again, is there room for sentiment there? Remember, eight-man teams instead of nine now. It's a tough decision and, and I wouldn't know which way to go, but it, it depends on how much they really believe in, in the Breton. I'm imagining Mark Maddio sat at a big table with a red and white checkered tablecloth. He's got some red, white and blue napkins and some felt tips out and he's got 12 names trying to narrow it down for his eight-man tour team hasn't he but we shall see we shall see before we wrap up the news roundup just if you want to catch up with all the women's racing listen to the latest episode of the cycling podcast feminine with rose manley orla shenui and lizzie banks brings us right back up to date with everything that's been going on over the past few weeks really fantastic episode actually um, a riot at the start actually and then lizzie talks about her own comeback to racing at the joe martin stage race which was over in Arkansas. A bit of concerning news from the women's peloton though. Sherry Boswit of Canyon SRAM has tested positive for letrozole. Positive test was from the Tour de Normandy back in March and letrozole is a hormone which has apparently similar effects to testosterone which is why it's on the WADA banned list. She says she's innocent and the victim of cross-contamination. She's currently suspended by the team and her case will be heard next week so we will watch that case with interest. And finally before we switch our attention to the Critium du Dauphiné fully for this episode. Daniel Freiber caught up with Tadej Pogacar, who was speaking to the media a few days ago. Of course, all being equal, maybe Pogacar would have been in the Dauphiné, although he does tend to prefer the Tour of Slovenia in his build-up to the Tour de France. But anyway, all roads lead towards Bilbao and the resumption of this Pogacar-Vingagor battle. But of course, Pogacar has been out of action since Liège-Bastogne-Liège, that crash, the fractured wrist. And well, Daniel had a word with him about how his recovery is going and what things look like between here and Bilbao and the Tour de France for the Slovenian. So Tadej, you got 29 days till the start of the Tour de France. I assume you're still doing the Tour de France. The last week, you're not going to do a whole lot. So you got three weeks, I guess, of intense training. What needs to happen in those three weeks? Break them down for me. What do you need to do? I've been training quite good until now. Home trainer running and start now this week on the road. So yeah, the shape is not so bad as I thought it gonna be after uh, the rollers also the wrist is getting better every day and this week i'm in sierra nevada for altitude camp try to get as much as possible out of this camp here i have great support from the team and we can do uh, big hours on the bike and having a massage and uh, physiotherapy here it's a lot of work yeah then in 11 june i go off sierra nevada go to do recon of a few stages for the tour and then back on uh, Sestriere training camp. And then hopefully I will do national championships, TT and road race. So no Tour Slovenia? No, I don't think so. I think it's unfortunately, um, yeah, I lost some training. Couldn't do much on the road in the last four weeks. I need to focus a little bit more on the intervals and long trainings outside. The Cycling Podcast is supported by Science in Sport. Science in Sport, fueled by science. Thank you very much to Science in Sport, our biggest supporters. They've been with us since 2016 now, and they will be supporting us, fueling us through another Tour de France in a few weeks' time. 
The next episode of Service Course, made by Tom Wally and Lizzie Banks, hosted by them anyway, features a long kind of documentary piece about the Tour de Lunsar in Sierra Leone, which is sponsored by Science and Sport. It's an editorial piece, but it's one which obviously... Uh, it was science and sports support of that race which piqued our interest and it's a really fantastic package that episode will be out on friday it's called from arkansas to lunsar uh, because also it features lizzie talking a bit more about her comeback in the joe martin stage race in arkansas now we're going to focus on the criterium du dauphiné and hear from our very good friend the voice of radio tour seb piquet who's recorded some little snippets for us as the race has been unfolding Bonjour à tous. Uh, it's back to racing in the red car for me uh, with what is considered as the dress rehearsal for the Tour de France, the 75th edition of the Criterium du Dauphiné. Always interesting to see the shape of the contenders for the, the Tour de France on the Dauphiné, how they're doing after their long training camps in Sierra Nevada or at uh, Teide. It's also... Um, a race where um, a lot can happen uh, and uh, some big names can crash out of the Dauphiné and therefore crash out of the Tour de France. It's going to be an interesting week in the French Alps, starting in Auvergne and then heading towards the, the bigger mountains uh, of the Alps. So to my highlights of the week so far at this Dauphiné, the first uh, stage around Chambon-sur-Lac, 158 kilometers of racing. A lot of thunderstorms on that day. And also one might wonder why some of the big uh, sprinters decided to come onto Dauphiné because it's a super hard course. And riders like Dylan Runewegen or Sam Bennett will be struggling all week long. I'm not even sure if they have an opportunity to shine. First stage was won by Christophe Laporte, and as expected, the big sprinters were dropped way before the finish. And then to stage two, between Brassac-Lemine and La Chaise-Dieu, known for its cathedral, another hilly one, that one, a day of highs and lows, a massive low for Team Jumbo Visma. We saw the crash that involved Steven Kreuzweig breaking his collarbone, injuring his shoulder and out for the next Tour de France. That's, that's a massive blow for the, the Dutch team uh, who will have to find a, someone to uh, replace uh, Steven Kreuzweig, who is and who would have been precious alongside Vingegaard in the mountains. And the massive high is, of course, for Julien Alaphilippe. Really, really delighted once he'd crossed the finish line. Had a chat with him. He had a massive smile of relief on his face after his, uh, his victory. Means that he's back. He's back into action. And he feels that, uh, well, hopefully he'll do just as well in the Alps. And why not on the first two stages in Basque Country? Stage three of the Dauphiné between Monistrol sur Loire and Le Coteau, 194.5 kilometers of racing, the longest stage of the Dauphiné. And oh my goodness, what a boring day it was. Uh, two men managed to break away from the, the peloton, Milesi and Burgodo, as soon as kilometer zero. Milesi um, decided that it wasn't going to work out. 
he stopped his efforts. Birgodo carried on on his own, and he too saw that he would eventually be caught by uh, a pack led by the sprinters' teams. He stopped his efforts as well, and we basically spent the day behind a bunch of person all the way to the finish in Lukoto. Several crashes later, it was a bunch sprint. Bennett and Ronewegen looked uh, in perfect uh, position to finally win their stage in this mountainous Dauphiné. They didn't because Laporte was the fastest. A second stage success for Christophe Laporte. He keeps the yellow jersey on his shoulders. And the highlights of my day was having dinner in the restaurant of Chef Trois Gros in Rouen. Wonderful moment. Well, Seb Piquet has a front row seat for the Critium du Dauphiné, as he does at the Tour de France. Not an awful lot to see on stage three, it has to be said, was there, chaps. But uh, the race so far, halfway uh, we are through the Dauphiné. Stage one, won by Christophe Laporte, led out by Jonas Vingegaard for Jumbo Visma. Uh, significant that perhaps heartbreak for Runa Herigots of Antamarche though caught within sight of the line and disappointment also for Ethan Hayter who crashed with about 75 kilometers to go in the wet and has fractured his collarbone and that is a blow for the Ineos riders tour chances stage two Julian Alaphilippe, is he back? We'll ask Francois Tomaso that question in a moment. But another casualty, Stephen Krasreich, as Seb said, crashed and is out of the tour. That will be a setback for Vingegaard and Jumbo Visma as well. There was a protest on stage three. Uh, the riders, uh, well, they maybe were protesting because they were on a bit of a go slow after the protest on the side of the road. And then there was a real messy sprint, but Christophe Laporte got his second stage win in the yellow jersey. Uh, people ducking and diving all over the place because Dylan Grunewig and, and Sam Bennett, who finished second and third, were both relegated. So uh, a win for Laporte there. And we've just watched the time trial this afternoon, a victory for Mikael Björk of UAE Team Emirates. And uh, well, this sets it up nicely for the second half of the race. Jonas Vingegaard poised just on the shoulder of his compatriot from Denmark, Björk. But Francois, Julian Alaphilippe, we have seen him win a race this season, the Four Nardesh Classic back in February, but it's not been a vintage year for a man who's worn the rainbow jersey with such distinction for two years, had his troubles in the second of those years, admittedly. And of course, he's been on the receiving end of Patrick Lefebvre's kind of unique management style. But over there in France, Francois, what is the story with Julian Alaphilippe? And does this mean that he's going to be surfing into the Tour de France on the crest of a wave? Difficult to say. What's obvious is I think everybody's been very hard on uh, Alaphilippe in the last couple of months, maybe because you know, we got used to so much from, from him, you know, you know, long seasons, he was going for the uh, Tour de France, uh, yellow jersey, polka jersey, green jersey, winning stages, uh, going for Liège, going for winning two world championships. I mean, we, we got used for Julien Alaphilippe being a main actor in all the races he, he, he entered. And then all of a sudden, he, he got health problems. He crashed a couple of times. And all of a sudden, the, the luck, the wave you were talking about, you know, th- there is always a time when, you know, uh, it kind of ebbs back. And that's that, that's what I, that, that was the moment in his career. Also, he's a changed man. You know, he's, he's a father now. He's settled in a family life. You can't go on uh, on the role the way he did in the past. So, 
all of a sudden to decide that, you know, oh, Julian Philippe is finished, you know, just because he didn't have the, the, the formidable results he had in the past seasons was grossly exaggerated in my point of view. It's, it's probably all, also, it, it would be grossly exaggerated to pretend he's back and he's going to be a Tour de France contender. But he showed the way he sprinted and the way he handled that, that finale and the way he handled that sprint victory over Christophe Laporte and, and all the others, uh, other sprinters, nominal sprinters, showed that he, he still knows how to, he still has the knack, still has the, the urge and he's still Julien Alaphilippe. And we will, of course, discuss the gesture he made at the end of, uh, uh, you know, just before crossing the line. We were almost expecting another blunder, you know, Ale Philippe style, like, you know, don't celebrate too early. You might be you're beaten on the line, but it didn't happen. But we don't know what it meant. Didn't mean, you know, calm down. I'm winning the stage, but I'm, you know, I haven't won the Tour de France yet, or I'm not back yet. Or was he trying to silence his critics? And among them, the most famous of them, Patrick Lefebvre. Uh, who knows? The only thing I can say is that uh, I, I watched the, the race uh, in, in on Eurosport a bit, you know, just to please Rob, and I also watched it on France Television. And on France Television, the consultant is Marion Rousse. And Marion Rousse, as everybody knows, is uh, Julien Alaphilippe's partner and uh, the, the mother of uh, their child. And she was, well, of course, you can imagine, she was uh, really, really happy about it. And, and she seemed to interpret that gesture as, yeah, as, a, a, as, as an answer to the criticism of the past month. Sudal, quick step. Everything has kind of gone in the way of Remco Evenepoel over the last 18 months, hasn't it, Rob? But the pressure, I guess, will be on Alaphilippe's shoulders at the Tour de France because, well, by dint of his nationality, if nothing else, he will be one of the French stars in the Tour, riding for one of the, the biggest teams that will expect results of some description. This is something I always feel sorry for French riders when it comes to July because of the pressure that's placed on their shoulders. We've seen it with, with Pinot, who's enjoyed going to race at the Giro. We've seen it last year with Bardet as well, who wanted to go and do something different. Arnaud Dumas has enjoyed his great as grand to a success away from France as well. And these are all Rolls-Royce of riders, you know, these are high-caliber, top-quality riders. Alaphilippe has done it at the Tour. He's been brilliant, hasn't he? He's been up there. And you have to say, the first few stages this year, they're right up his street if he's on form. The Basque country is a la Philippe-style country, isn't it? Not long climbs, 20-kilometre jobs where you're going to get the Vingegors and Pogacas fighting it out. Not flat sprints either. These are going to be hard days, ridden like classics in the opening few days, I think, as well. So right up a la Philippe street, <laughs> with the extra pressure, the, the non-French pressure, if you like, that's Patrick Lefebvre's playbook, isn't it? We've seen it with... In recent years, Sam Bennett, Mark Cavendish. It's just the way he operates. And, and you mentioned Avenapool. He needs more domestiques because we know that team needs to be stronger if Avenapool is to be serious about coming to the Tour next year and trying to do his thing. So, unfortunately, I don't think they have a UAE budget. They don't have an Ineos budget, do they? And they have to redistribute their wealth. So, I would not be surprised if Alaphilippe leaves the team at the end of the season. But likewise, I would not equally be surprised if he was on fire at this tour and back to his swashbuckling best. Yeah, I mean, he was one of the Galacticos, wasn't he? And he has kind of fallen foul of Lefebvre's management techniques uh, without uh, making light of it. it. It sometimes does appear from the outside to be you know, alienate or antagonise in order to motivate. Uh, whether that works with Alaphilippe or not, we will have to see. But if you go back to when the whole sport came out of lockdown, 
Uh, he was fantastic in the opening week of that 2020 Tour de France, wasn't he? Everything seemed to be going his way when he won the world title just after the Tour. And then, you know, almost won Liège-Bastogne-Liège, but for the early celebration, as he said, Francois. Maybe that was the beginning of the kind of the, the run of bad luck because he then had the incident with the motorbike in the Tour of Flanders right at the end of that post-lockdown period. And then 2022, it's just one thing after another. There was that spectacular crash at Strada Bianca where he somersaulted into the um, the verge but fought his way back, wasn't badly hurt. The Liège-Bastogne-Liège crash was more serious and that kept him out of the rest of the spring. And although he was back racing just before the Tour, he didn't get into the lineup for last year's Tour de France. And then, of course, crashed out of the Vuelta halfway through and dislocated his shoulder. So it's been a real run of bad luck for him. And I think the Tour de France needs the swashbuckling Alaphilippe back, certainly in those opening few days. Get over the mountains in yellow, bring the yellow jersey back to France. I can see Francois swelling up with pride, uh, Mark Maddio-esque almost in my little screen here. Um, but I wanted to ask about another Frenchman, Francois, Christophe Laporte, really impressive so far this week. In fact, impressive since he went to Jumbo Visma. And it makes you wonder, uh, was it Cofidis that was the problem or was this just a rider maturing and growing into a role and being given a real sense of a place in a, a big, powerful team? That's a big question, you know. I think it's a little bit of both. I think Jumbo, yeah, there is a Jumbo-Visma effect. And unlike other teams like Ineos, when, when a rider of the potential of Christophe Laporte signs for Jumbo-Visma, he's not told, you know, you're, you're now a domestique, uh, you pay well, but you're not doing anything, you're working for your leader and that's all. Uh, the, the Jumbo-Visma approach obviously is different. I mean, he won Gen-Vevelgem thanks to Wood von Aert, who said, you know, go ahead, uh, you know, take it. And, and some of the, the early uh, wins he had last, last year in the Tour, even in Paris, were kind of favours from the team. So is it a way to keep him motivated. Of course, it's, it probably is. I mean, we saw in the past Jumbo Visma doing that, like Kurt Bowman in last year's Giro winning stages. I mean, they're not treating like their domestics as slaves or, <laughs> or just simple domestic, the domestics. They, they, there's more to the team spirit than that. So the Jumbo Visma effect on that part obviously is important. But also, unfortunately, it's not the first time a rider leaves Cofidis to go abroad and then shines. I remember Sylvain Chavanel. I mean, there's, there's going to quick step. On the contrary, guys who came from other teams to Kofidis, like Nathar Buhani, never performed with Kofidis. So I'm afraid, I mean, you know, as, as much as I like uh, Cédric Vasseur, I mean, they, there, there is a kind of a Kofidis uh, doom there somewhere. Kofidis bashing, I think, is the easiest thing to do in our sport. And I have to put my hand up because I'm sometimes guilty of it. I think we all are. But they give everybody reason to be like that. You talk to, you know, we all, I think we all had colleagues who have ridden there and been there. And we talk, you know, you talk to people in the team and you get the old eyebrow raise and things like that. It's like, yeah, certain things aren't done right. You mentioned Cédric Vasseur there. Um, I think Kofidis have been a lot better, in fact, since he arrived with Roberto Damiani. And they're on the right trajectory. Just things aren't happening that quickly, are they? And How many years of hurt is it Well, now? here we go. Every season I sit down to do my Tour de France notes. And the first line I can write, every November when the route is announced, is just to update the little line I've got under Cofidis. The last time they won a stage was, and it's now 15 years of hurt. They're going to be doing a song about it soon. Where's Badil and Skinner and the Lightning Seeds? Sylvain Chavanel, Montluçon in 2008. And that, for a team that's been going there every year, with some pretty big name riders, 
it's pretty incredible, isn't it? That one stage hasn't fallen their way. Well, as Orla Shenui uncovered for an episode of Kilometre Zero many years ago now when she spoke to Cedric Vasseur, they have a bottle of champagne in the team bus, don't they? In the luggage compartment in the team bus, waiting to be opened when they finally break their duck. Francois, that bottle must be worth a fortune by now. But uh, it's been... <laughs> It's been coffee disappointing for them, but maybe this year they maybe this year will be their year. We're going to turn our attention to the Great Danes. Yeah, you know, I worked so hard for this uh, first pro victory, and um, yeah, I'm just so relieved that I finally got it now. Yeah, a lot of uh, emotion because because you you struggled or you thought it wasn't going to come, and it has finally come. Yeah, you know, I felt like I had so many chances to to do it and I just uh, didn't live up to my own expectation. And uh, yeah, you know, even this morning I doubted myself on the, I said the course was too hard and uh, yeah, my manager texted me that, uh, yeah, just go for it today. I have nothing to lose and uh, I'm just so happy. Tell us, uh, tell us how you did it. It was uh, a masterpiece. The first part you were well behind Cavagna and then it was amazing. Yeah, the first climb I wanted to uh, go hard, but not above my limits because uh, there were some really hard climbs coming later in the in the race, and uh, yeah, I just stayed within my limits and uh, did the descent as good as I could. It didn't took, take too much risk, and uh, yeah, and then the last like 10k's, uh, David, the aerod- aerodynamicist of the team, he was in the car and really pushing me. Yeah, and then the last, like, five kilometers, I think I was, like, on time with Cavagna, and then, uh, yeah, then I could just power it home. I just uh, thought about my wife, and, uh, yeah, and then I just ran it to the finish line. You might, your wife must be pretty proud. She's probably watching TV now. Yeah, actually, she had a long ride today, but uh, I think she made it back before I finished, uh, finished the race. Well, that was the winner of the Stage 4 time trial at the Criterium du Dauphiné. The Danish rider, Michael Björg, rides for Team UAE Emirates, of course. Seb Piquet asking the questions. And, well, you can hear the emotion in Björg's voice there, talking about how this long wait for his first win as a professional rider. And I suppose a real surprise because he absolutely dominated the time trial scene as an under-20. Won the world title three times in a row, the final time being in Yorkshire in 2019 before turning professional for UAE Team Emirates, crediting his team's aerodynamicist there uh, for getting him over the line and also mentioned his wife. And I should just point out that that is Emma Norsgaard. Björk, who is a pro rider for the Movistar team. So that's why she was out on a long training ride. She, of course, is the brother of Matthias Norsgaard, who is also a pro with the Movistar team. So there's sort of summer holiday cycling trips or Christmas cycle ride. Probably quite hard to stay on the wheel with the the Björk Norsgaard family. Anyway, a real impressive performance. And uh, it gives him the yellow jersey, not anticipating he's going to keep that in the mountainous stages to come. I wouldn't have thought, not with Jonas Vingegaard just, uh, well, seconds back, really. But an impressive display, nonetheless. And I suppose getting the first one under his belt will give him the encouragement, the motivation, the, the, the belief that the next one can come as, uh, a bit more quickly. I mean, there was comments on the, on French TV after his win that uh, he kind of, you know, as I was saying about people signing for Ineos, that he decided to launch his pro career as a as a 
domestic, as a teammate, and sacrificing his own uh, his own potential. But I don't think it's true when you, when you see how emotional he was after the win. As he said, I mean, what he did in the pro ranks didn't you know he didn't live up to his expectations. Mean that he actually did expect much more than than he actually did. Great results in time trials as a pro, but never to the extent well we saw today. Uh, did he lose a little bit of weight to be a better climber? You know, uh, being a domestic for UAE. Possibly, but it's true that I mean he, he was a little bit disappointing since he uh, he joined the pro ranks. And another thing we we have to say is once again the strength of uh, Danish cycling is is amazing. Once again, I mean they they're everywhere. You know, Vingegaard, of course, but I mean Magnus Korn, Mats Pedersen. I don't know if there's a team ranking in the UCI rankings. You know, by nation, but I mean. Denmark are now kind of, a, yeah, topping the, 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 the bill probably. They're they're so good, fast. I think we also have to give credit to Axel Merckx as well because yet again, he is yet another of his disciples, of his pupils, of his alumni to come from what it was, Hagen's Berman Axion, I think. Um, and he's had a few different names down the years. So many good riders have gone on to become really good, solid professionals. And and Biel is still only 24 years of age as well. We saw him taking that first emotional win in, in the Dauphiné there. But let's think back to the Tour last year. And the team, the man himself, all right, they weren't at the best, were they? Tadej Pogacar and company. I mean, they were pretty good, but not just quite not quite good enough last year. I'm thinking to the Pyrenees at the end. Remember that ride from Biel there when he was just indefatigable up the hill? And I was sat with Sean Kelly on that day, albeit remotely, uh, looking at each other and we just could not believe how strong the guy was. I, I thought that, even though it didn't happen for them, was one of the strongest single man of the match performances, if you like, of the whole Tour de France last year. He's an incredible engine on him. Yeah, especially on a course like today where it was all uphill dragging to the end, wasn't it? That's where the, the pacing is really important. And perhaps it's telling that Jonas Vingegaard was quickest to the first time check, which included the, the first uphill section, but then wasn't quite fast enough over the closing kilometers i mean a perfect ride when you think he's going to go for gc here and he doesn't want to be too hot now going into the tour de france but looking ahead this battle between jumbo visma and uae team emirates is shaping up really nicely not least because of uh, the riders that the two leaders pogacar and vingegaard have to call on of course, Vingegaard this week has lost Stephen Krausweich, who would have been one of those experienced climbers who's a kind of a climbing diesel, isn't he? He can just ride and ride and ride. That's a big loss for them, I would have thought, when uh, there's so much climbing in the Tour de France. Vingegaard, though, looking good, looking like uh, the favourite. Daniel was asking us earlier in the season, you know, where's your... Where's your dial pointing? Is it pointing to Vingegaard? Is it pointing to Pogacar? Today, as we know what we know now, Francois, what do you reckon? It's just an impression, but since the start of the season, I, I've kind of felt much more confidence in Pogacar's way of riding, even with the injury, than with the Vingegaard, who was not so good at Paris, who, even here, I mean, since the start of the Dauphiné, uh, leading out, 
Laporte for a stage win. Okay, fine, interesting. Why not? You know, show you you're, you're there helping your mate. But it was dangerous. If you saw the the finale of that stage, there he was. You know, with sprinters and lead out guys. I mean, professional. And you know, on in a in a sprint, you stick to your line. You don't look back. And I mean, uh, Vingegaard didn't stick to his line. He, he did look back. He could have crashed. So I don't know. Is is it you know manifestation of jitters or what, what did he do there what, why did he do that is the first thing today he timed his time trial pretty badly you know starting to too too hard probably and lost lots of time on Bjerg in the in the in the final part so of course Vingegaard would be on the tour podium if it, nothing serious happens to him if I had to bet money which has never do you know if I had to gamble I will put my money on Pogacar and I still find him much more trustworthy well if you see what Pogacar won this year already, what, what he's won in the past, and Vingegaard so far has only won one Tour de France. I mean, so so, so Pogacar is probably more of a, of a solid uh, bet in the end. Interesting. <laughs> do you know what? I'm not saying there isn't any fundament or anything, because I actually do think there's quite a lot of base in what you're saying there. I can, I can get into your points. I would have said a few weeks ago that I was in the Pogacar camp as well, I think. Not that I'm not in the Pogacar camp now, but I'm looking at what is going to do before the Tour. And he's only going to race two days. He's not even doing the Tour of Slovenia now. He's going to do the National Championships and then go to the Tour de France. This year's Tour, I'm sure your gents will both agree, it's front-loaded as well as back-loaded. The first week looks like a Vuelta. Not just because it starts in Spain, um, but because of the difficulty of the stages. We go straight into the Pyrenees, don't we? After maybe one effort for the sprinters and then we go across. We've got just, what is it, 20-odd kilometres of time trialling. If you want to take time trialling as an example, then Vingegaard looks great, doesn't he? Because he was a long way in front of the rest of the general classification contenders. What is it, almost three minutes to Embrik Mas, two and a half minutes to Carapaz and Bernal and people like that. Two 40-odd, I think it was, to, to Mikel Landa, who's been talked up as having a great start of the season. There were other guys that looked good. O'Connor, Hinley, I thought, did decent time trials as well. But Vingegaard, I think he's got the, the top team, hasn't he? And I certainly would not count him out. Well, I mean, on the time trialling point, Rob, as you say, there's less time trialling in the Tour de France. There's fewer kilometres of time trials in the Tour de France than there was in the Dauphiné because the time trial in the Tour is 22 kilometres, and it's uh, much more of a climbing test as well, so tricky to gauge. When it comes to these sorts of time trials, I always look at the riders who are just behind and try to take, as you've done there, you know, some kind of marker off some of the other general classification contenders. I mean, would Vingegaard be happy that he was, what, um, 29 seconds ahead of Ben O'Connor, for example. Adam Yates was uh, almost a minute behind Mikael Björk, so what, 45 seconds or so behind Vingegaard. I mean, yeah, they're kind of par results, aren't they? Uh, whereas Mass obviously had a bit of a, a jour sans today, and Carapaz, well, maybe we'll talk about him in the next part. But before we move on, I did also want to just talk about the sprinters. We touched on it with Damar. There was a chaotic uh, sprint where both Sam Bennett and Dylan Groenewegen were disqualified, or relegated rather. Uh, they're still in the race, but they were relegated for, well, everyone was weaving everywhere. I mean, pretty much in the overhead shot of that finish, it looked like uh, pretty much Laporte was the only one who went straight as an arrow and even he sort of moved a bit to the right but was there a sense I don't know a sense of desperation very few chances for the sprinters in this race and it's important for them going into the Tour de France to try and 
you know, get something uh, because the tour itself, not a huge number of opportunities for the sprinters and certainly not right at the start of week one. You know, this is pretty much the anti-Jean-Marie LeBlanc tour, isn't it, Francois? Remember those years in the 2000s where there'd be almost a week of back-to-back sprint finishes. Those days are long gone. The sprinters are being marginalised, aren't they? And I wonder if that leads to the kind of slight sense of risk-taking or an increased sense of risk-taking. Not sure. Maybe that's just anecdote over evidence. I don't know. As I said before, you know, at the beginning of this, uh, you know, uh, podcast about uh, Arnaud Demar, I mean, the, the, the sprints have changed. I mean, there's, there's a very interesting phenomenon in the way courses are, are made these days. There's no more sprint stages. I agree about that. But there's no more climbing stages like the, the, the old ones, like very few uh, 250Ks for or category uh, climbs. It used to be the Jean-Marie Leblanc Tour, as you said. You had, for, you had six or seven sprint stages. Then you had four or five you know, high mountain stages. I mean, they're gone as well. There's an emphasis now put on all-rounders and baroudeurs, as we say, you know, attacking aggressive riders, like, like as you said, the welter types. They're, they're, they're mo- like the, the two sprints on this Dauphiné, when you see Christophe, of Laporte outpowering someone like Sam Bennett in the finale, it, it, it proves that it's not uh, your normal Paris Tour finish. You know, it's, it's something else. It's difficult for sprinters. Uh, remember reading Tour de Force, you know, the Mark Cavendish's book, which was translated in, into fr- into French, was complaining about the evolution of spr- you know sprint and the lack of sprint stages. But I think the pure climbers can complain as well. The pure time trialists can can complain. There's no almost no time trial on the Tour. The way the courses are, are, are designed these days uh, are very difficult. Different and what organizers are trying to do go for versa- versatile riders, or I don't know, I don't know, but it's a fact they want it to look good on the telly, that's what they're doing. <laughs> sure, <laughs> it's our fault. <laughs> the sun's out here in the south of England, not Watford, bathed in sunshine the last few days, which means it's nearly time to go cycling in short sleeves and shorts. I don't want to get too carried away, it's not quite that warm yet, but. Remember that MAP are our partners. They have created the fantastic cycling podcast jersey, which is available at map.cc. And if you heard my episode of Explore, Rob, our only fools and cyclists episode where Rob Hatch, Sean Kelly and I went for a bike ride in the southwest of England, you'll have heard that I bumped into, overtook actually, sorry, Charles, uh, a friend of the podcast who was out from Maidenhead and he was riding the 12 Hills of Christmas route from an old episode of Explore. Quite staggering, really. Came across him quite by chance, didn't set this up at all, and he was resplendent in his cycling podcast map jersey if you would like to get your hands on one or the whole range of cycling podcast accessories go to map.cc now back to the Cretum du Dauphiné I was interested to see that our friend Joe Dombrowski who popped up regularly in our Giro d'Italia coverage was on the start list for the Dauphiné just what it would have had five days off between the two really if you count the two travel days I do gather that he was just emailed a plane ticket to Leo that was that was how he found out he was doing the Dauphiné just a few days after the Giro there are a few other riders who did the Giro and are in the Dauphiné field two with Bahrain Jack Haig and Eduardo Zambanini they all finished the Giro and then there's three other riders who only did sort of six eight or ten days the old days of riders doing the Giro then the Dauphiné then the Tour completely gone the even older days where the Giro and the Dauphiné overlapped 
they're even further in the rearview mirror, aren't they, Francois? But here we are. It's really interesting. These few days just really brings the Tour de France to the top of the uh, order, doesn't it? Because you look at the riders and you think, well, this is probably 60-70% of the Tour de France peloton here. The rest will all be at altitude, uh, training hard. Uh, but what about some of the riders that we expect to be on the start line in Bilbao? I thought this time yesterday, Richard Carapaz was having an absolutely blinding Dauphiné. And in fact, this morning I was speaking to somebody who uh, is quite close to the EF education team saying, well, your man could be in the yellow jersey tonight, maybe. But it really didn't go that well for Carapaz in the time trial, did it? Lost a lot of time. Couldn't really work out what the problem was. Of course, he was uh, being caught and passed by Alaphilippe at one point, wasn't he, I think? I don't think you can draw... Lots of lessons from the Dauphiné. The, the recent Dauphinés have shown that if you're too good at the Dauphiné, don't do anything. You peak a little bit too early. I remember Jakob Fuglzang. I mean, uh, so there, there are quite a few guys who won the Dauphiné or did well in Dauphiné, like Ben O'Connor in, 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 in the recent past, and who, who didn't fare the, uh, so well in the Tour. So let, let's be very cautious. And, and the other thing is this time trial as we said as well very different from what we're going to get on 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 the tour it was also a very unusual kind of uh, uh, time trial uh, hills then flat sections and it, so you know you, you, if you look at the top 10 uh, on, in the time trial to, today you've got you've got guys who are specialists like Remy Cavagna you've got good climbers like Ben O'Connor you've got you've got ev everything and the rest so I don't think you know we can draw uh, lots of lessons from what we saw today so so to go Back to Richard Carapaz, as you say, he won the uh, uh, Alpe Mercantour Classic very recently. I don't know, it's difficult to say. I, I, I don't think this performance today is, is an indicator of how good he will be at the Tour, not at all. And what about Egan Banal, Rob, the Ineos Grenadiers rider, still on that long comeback trail from that terrible crash he had? Uh, well, how long ago was that now? Two years ago now? Right, yeah. Almost two years, Sorry. almost two years, I'd say. Egan Bernal. I mean, he, where is he? He's down in, this is the general classification I'm looking at. He's 30th at the minute, but he's up there. He's looking better than Emrik Mas, who he's talked about. He's better than Mikel Landon. These are guys who've had really good purposeful build-ups. I'm really pleasantly surprised with how he's come back from, from this injury so soon. Uh, he's looked decent in the last few races he's ridden, hasn't he? Top 10 in Hungary. He was top 10 in Romandie as well. Um, I've been really pleasantly surprised with him and it's going to be interesting to see how he goes, what he does. The nice thing is, I don't think there's any sort of pressure on him at the minute, which must be quite a nice way for him to race. Might Maybe because of how good he's been, he's putting pressure on himself, I'm not sure. But he seems to be sort of one of these eternally positive people. You know, he's always believed in himself and he's always worked hard. There's very little doubt about that. If you look at his palmares in the two or three years where he absolutely went crazy, you know, in the, the Tour, the Giro, Paris-Nice, Tour de Suisse, California, the Colombia Tour as well that was around for a couple of years. He was uh, a bit of a bike rider, wasn't he? The still only 26-year-old, let's remind ourselves, from the Colombian capital. He's going to be one of the more intriguing stories of the summer, isn't he? Not quite sure where he's going to go, but... I think a lot of people will be following just because of the the emotional attachment to what happened really and what he was and where he can get to. Yeah, I mean, it's an interesting one with Ineos Grenadiers, isn't it? And the Tour de France. I mean, in the Sky years and in fact up to Banal's Tour de France victory in 2019, they were the team to beat year after year. And it's not as if they haven't got 
a roster stacked with talent, but it might not be a race for the GC for them at the Tour de France. I mean, Danny Martinez is a decent shout for, you know, top 10, but no real indication that he's going to win a Tour de France. And, well, I I have some rumours swirling around, aren't there, that that perhaps Jim Ratcliffe might get the checkbook out and sign Remco Evenepoel. Not sure whether that's for Manchester United or for uh, Ineos (laughs) Grenadiers. Sorry, I know, lazy, lazy stuff, Rob. You, You rolled your eyes at just the right moment there but Ineos clearly needs something don't they I I mean I'm hearing some rumors that there might be quite uh, some turnover in the winter in terms of their kind of you know roster of climbing talent and of course they've got a sensational rider Tom Pidcock but he's a kind of a a one-day rider in a Grand Tour team really when it comes to the Tour de France isn't it so it'll be interesting to see maybe it'll be softly softly with Bernal Perhaps if he has a, a, a blinding day, he could win a stage. And I think that would be a real comeback story, wouldn't it? Considering the extent of the injuries he had in that training accident. Ineos at the Tour de France this year is, 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 is quite a puzzle. I mean, you had the impression that they had their A team at the Giro. And, and given what happened with the injuries, Theo, Sivakov and Bernal still being, you know, just being back. It's very tricky to kind of decipher what's going to happen, what team they're going to field. Yeah, and I think Lionel mentioned whether they go for the GC or not. You know, if they don't think they have it, I just wondered if they could be really brave and just go an all-out race and attack every sort of stage. Because they have riders for every single stage almost. You know, they they could run riot really if they targeted days and didn't care about the GC. Maybe take their toll on both UAE team Emirates and Jumbo Visma who would have to take turns to chase them I guess yeah that would be one tactic wouldn't it but I can't really see that it's not really in their DNA is it as much as I would love love to see it that's why it excites us I think because it's something that we wouldn't expect from them well, the Critum du Dauphiné is going to conclude on Sunday. All the climbing is in the second half of the race. I mean, like you, Francois, I am not a betting man these days, uh, but I can't really see much beyond Jonas Vingegaard winning. And then that does set us up really nicely for the Tour de France and this anticipated battle. But is there anything else that's caught your eye this week, Francois, from the race? I mean, what's the mood over there in France? Is, is Netflix fever and Tour de France fever taking over? Quite a bit of excitement on Netflix because apparently quite a few French uh, riders or ex-riders play a prominent part in it so everybody wants kind of wants to see whether he is in it you know and how good he looks so um, but I guess it's the case <laughs> I think it's the case for every every rider or everybody involved you know in cycling and who thinks he might be uh, a fixture in in uh, in the Netflix uh, series uh, Apart from that, the only little thing that got me, I mean, this is kind of a recurrent thing, but on the first day, remember, Damien Godon got the Combatif uh, Award when when obviously, uh, I mean, you know, the other guy in the break, I, I can't pronounce his name. So Herregots. Fr- okay. Rune Herregots. <laughs> Thank you very much, Rob. You know, deserved it entirely, which raises the questions once again. It's always the case on the Tour de France when you have the Combatif, it always goes to the Frenchman in the break. Uh, how relevant is this thing, you know? Uh, I, I I want to use one of my favorite uh, words. Uh, Go on. <laughs> but yeah, that, that's definitely bullshit, isn't it? What? What's? What? <laughs> yes, yes, we got him to say it. Yeah, uh, brilliant. I'm w- I'm with you, Francois, and uh, well, you're the only one of the three of us who can say that without a- accusations of some kind of anti-French bias. But I'm completely with you. Yes, it's a, but it's always chosen by a, a, 
a sponsor or VIP who will be from France, I guess. It's the same on the Tour de France, isn't it? If there's any opportunity to give the combativity prize to the French rider in the break, they will take it. But uh, yeah, maybe we'll maybe we'll look into the combativity prize in the opening week of the Tour, Francois. Send you off on a, on a farewell mission to alienate everybody at ASO. Ask them whether it's time to retire it. I don't know. Well, listen, we should probably leave it there. I will say on the Netflix series that tomorrow, whenever it goes live for the general public across the Europe and the world, I'm anticipating the likes of Steve Chanel is going to take an absolute hammering on Google searches or pro cycling stats searches to, to work out who Steve Chanel is, was. There's a few people who perhaps are on the periphery of the peloton. But my impression of the first couple of episodes are it, it's it's good. It's certainly a very pacey series. It, it does kind of immerse you in the Tour de France and it whets the appetite as hopefully our episodes will between now and Bilbao on the 1st of July. Just to let everybody out there know what else is coming. If you're a friend of the podcast and you can sign up at thecyclingpodcast.com, we've been releasing some episodes from the archive that have not been on the Friends feed since they were first released the first one is the 2017 tour de france road trip francois that was the first tour that you joined us for in its entirety from dusseldorf to paris some very fond memories of that tour de france you invented the new drink tea pacino do you remember that (laughs) (laughs) frothy (laughs) frothy frothy milky tea We'll also release an episode made a little bit later on in that tour, 2017, in the team car when Richard Moore, our uh, late very dear friend was in the Cannondale team car. It's one of the most incredible episodes we've ever released. And uh, when I realized it wasn't on the Friends of the Podcast feed, I felt it ought to be there because it really puts you right in the center of the Tour de France. It's a real, you know, hold on to the edge of your seats type listen. And then we'll also release, release the 2019 road trip episode which is actually a two-parter i think so if you're a friend of the podcast and they sound like the sorts of things you want to listen to sign up at thecyclingpodcast.com you can add your subscription feed in a matter of clicks it really is very easy and a little heads up our kilometer zero series from the tour will be exclusively for friends of the podcast this year so well Francois, I will see you in Bilbao, if not before. Maybe we'll get you on our Tour de France preview. It'd be only right, wouldn't it, to get you on the preview episode in a couple of weeks' time. And Rob, of course, will be listening to you on Eurosport GCN all July. And uh, thank you very much for joining me today. Thank you. I'll be listening to you guys, and I cannot wait to hear you every morning when I start preparing for those stages. Just double-check our mistakes, though. The Cycling Podcast was created in 2013 by Richard Moore, Daniel Freed, and Lionel Burns.